Hello, everyone. Uh, this is, I believe, the seventh episode of Anigage Podcast. And today we have a very special guest, John Vrakey. And I will get to him in a minute. I'll just like to say a, a couple of things. So first of all, uh, the podcast has grown a bit uh, lately, I think, especially because of my last episode with Jonathan Peugeot, uh, which has uh, gotten quite popular. And so for those that are new to the podcast, I would encourage you to check previous conversations because a lot of them are just really good. So not only do you have to, you know, you can wait for new podcasts, but I would encourage you to check the previous ones as well. Uh, and I'll also like to mention uh, my Instagram page, which uh, I share a lot of uh, book reviews. And so if you use Instagram, uh, make sure to follow me because it's great to actually interact with people because these podcasts, uh, beyond the YouTube, when I publish them, uh, there's no interaction whatsoever. So Instagram is cool so that I can meet people and I can talk with people. So coming back to this episode, uh, this guest is very special because he actually inspired the, the name of the podcast. So uh, I'm not sure if I actually talked about it directly, but Anagage is the idea of a spiritual uh, ascension, getting into contact with reality and the higher state of being. And I learned that uh, from John and that's greatly inspired me. And that, that's, that's kind of what made me want to start the podcast and have good conversations and try to get um, to the bottom of things, basically. Um, so hello, John, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you. Hello, Diego. It's great to be here. And uh, I was wondering if perhaps that had been the case, that uh, the name had, had come from, uh, oh, my mic was falling there. The name, <laughs> the name had come from uh, Plato's notion of anagage uh, that I, I talked about in uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So uh, that's really cool. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I guess I'm flattered or, or uh, I, I'm, I'm happy that it, that inspired you. That's really wonderful. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. That's really, uh, that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, of course. So something that I wanted to get at is um, you've done your Dialogos uh, series and you have done a fair bit of them, which is quite impressive. And so I'd like you to, first of all, explore a bit of, of what that is. Like, how does that differ? How does, how does that differ from normal dialogue? And also not only the definition of it, but I would like you to explore what have you learned from it? Because you've, right. you've talked with so many people, not only at the level, both at the level of uh, new knowledge, like propositions that yeah. you've learned, but also from the experience itself. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, Diego. I'm, I've been trying to, uh, it's like participant observation, participating, but learning from it at the same time, and trying to not just talk about it, but really practice and exemplify it. So you're exactly right. That's, that's the intent. Um, and thank you for sharing that you see that because that means uh, I'm at least making some progress towards realizing uh, that goal. Um, so Dialogos is the idea of really bringing back communion into communication. Um, so Dialogos names a process that we can find ourselves, that we can participate in. The practice that for getting into it, I call dialectic from the Platonic tradition, not from Hegel's tradition. And dialectic is both something you practice individually and then something you practice with other people. <clears throat> but the main idea is what you're trying to do is to access other kinds of knowing uh, in addition to propositional. So normally when we're going into discourse, 
we concentrate on our propositions and we're trying to get you to agree or, or, you know, uh, or potentially you'll disagree. And we're working at that level. And of course we have to do that. That's just communication. We need to communicate to do work and to, you know, transmit information, et cetera. So I'm not trying to denigrate any of that, but the problem with that is that we tend to leave out the fact that we are also engaged in authentic relating in a, 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 a co-equal process of, uh, co-socialization, internalizing each other's perspectives. There's all this stuff going on. Um, and that stuff going on is where a lot of the, not the semantic meaning of propositions, but the existential meaning in life is being cultivated. So trying to get people, especially into the procedural, the perspectival, the participatory knowing. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, integrate a process in which you have, um, enhanced self-awareness through a mindfulness dimension that also is affording me having enhanced what Siegel calls mindsight into you. Uh, and that, so I use my self-awareness and my mindsight into you to better disclose myself to you, open myself up so that I'm not just trying to send you a message. I'm trying to afford a mutually satisfying connection and then hopefully your state of self-awareness uh, enables you to become aware of what's happening in you so you can share it with me. Um, and so you, and you can uh, more appropriately shape your uh, actions because I've sort of disclosed to you what I am. And so you can see more deeply into me. And so you can shape what you're saying to more deeply reach into me. And it, what happens is, right, we start to resonate with each other. I start to see more deeply into you and, and I change my behavior. So, so I'm reaching in and seeing more of who I am as I'm reaching into you to see more of who you are. And I coordinate those together so that I afford you being able to connect with me deeper. You reciprocate and then that takes off. And what you get um, is uh, you, get a, you get like a distributed flow state. You get flow state between multiple people rather just than between an individual and the environment. And what that does is it activates and accesses and accentuates uh, just the, the collective intelligence of that distributed cognition, and it bootstraps it up. And what what ha what what you start to see um, is that if people turn that, so there's a lot of practices that are emerging that do that. But if people turn that onto an aspirational project of the aspiration to virtue and wisdom, then it moves into this. Other, so that that collective enhanced intelligence can actually, right, inspire and afford people to to self transcend and to aspire to wisdom. Um, and that's what you see, of course, in the Platonic dialogues, because they're always talking about what is what is a particular virtue, what is courage, what is right, uh, what is friendship, etc. And what what I, what I've learned from this is um, it's interesting how people, people from religious, non-religious backgrounds get into a state of reverence for the process. For, for, and the thing is, you, you get it, they, they sometimes call it the we space. Uh, Christopher Master Pietro and in our, in our work, we call it Geist uh, or Logos, uh, Dialogos. What happens is the Logos takes shapes. This, this dynamical system, this, this distributed flow state uh, that's integrating individual uh, cognition into distributed cognition and distributed cognition into individual cognition. It takes on a life of its own. It takes on a life of its own. And 
what's happening is you're getting to a place you couldn't get to on your own as I am getting to a place that I couldn't get to on my own. And then we both feel that happening. It's like an arrow triangulating upward and everybody feels something beyond them, like that they're part of, that they're participating in. And they start using very, um, well, religious or spiritual language. They start to express reverence for the connectedness. And what happens is you get connected to yourself, you get connected to other people, and then you get connected to the, to the logos, this dynamical unfolding of intelligibility. And then what happens is the reverence kicks in, especially if people bring in this aspirational dimension, is they start, right, they start to feel a sense of connection to sort of being and deeper aspects of reality. And to my mind, that seems to be, I mean, the, the, I'm talking more about the, uh, the collective process. Like I said, dialectic has, a, it has an internal individual aspect that has to be cultivated and developed too. But the, the, what I'm talking about now uh, is very much what I think was happening in, uh, in Neoplatonic dialectic. And it certainly um, is capturing a lot um, of what all these authentic discourse on authentic relating practices are both uh, what's emerging in them, but also I think the potential that they could reach towards. So, so I, I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that was perfect. Um, and related to that, so something that I'd like to ask you about is, first of all, I think the term, while you popularize it, I think in the community, I see the term not taken as seriously as it should be. Like a I see a lot of people think of it as like a good conversation and obviously yeah. there are good conversations, but like there's a deeper, more mindful, uh, more virtuous uh, aspect of it that has to be taken into consideration. And to take that final leap, I've often found it hard to do it um, in, in this format for two reasons. One of them is that uh, it's not in person. And so the, 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 yeah. there's always something that's lost in terms of, in terms of communication and presence. Yeah. 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 And the other thing is because when you're speaking to someone, at least in this type of format, you're also taking into account people who are listening. Yeah. And so you can't just have a conversation as if you're alone with a person because yeah. some terms will be, they don't be comprehensible to some people watching and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So always in the back of your mind, you have to kind of have the conversation in a certain line um, and so those two restrictions to me have made me, uh, I think, not have as much of a good uh, D-logos as, as they could have been. And I'm wondering if you have encountered similar problems and, and how do you try to fix it or make it better? Yeah. So I, I agree with what you say. I, I, the term is being used very broadly, but I'm, I'm kind of... Um... And I don't mean this in, in uh, from an, a position of superiority. I don't mean it at all. But I'm very sort of tolerant of that right now because getting it out there, right, like people often have to have an, uh, a sort of an imperfect image that they can aspire to. Dialogos is something you can't really understand until you've had some initial taste of it. Um, and so I think of it more of a continuum where you have you have you have conversations that may be good, but then you have conversations that get into sort of mutual flow, and then you have conversations that are mutual flow and mutual dis disclosure. So you get a kind of love, you get philea, and then you and right. And so I think of it more as a continuum. And, and I'm happy if people like land somewhere on that continuum, because my hope is that as as this gets more understood. It will draw, and I, as I, I, I try to teach more and exemplify, and more people are doing this. And 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 don't forget, I'm also talking to a lot of the, you know, the the people that are are 
authoring these new practices like Guy Senstock and uh, Thomas and Elizabeth uh, at Evolve, right? All that, right? And so I'm hoping that it will, that the pop, if, if this is the right word, the popular understanding will gradually be educated. Uh, that's my hope. Um, so uh, I thank you for saying that. I, I agree with you, but uh, my attitude is, I guess my attitude is the attitude of a teacher, right? Like it's the same thing with you start teaching like philosophy to somebody. They're not going to really get it at the beginning. They'll, they're just thinking if they're just saying sort of wonderful things, they're doing philosophy and you have to let, and I, sorry, that sounds condescending. And I really don't mean it that way. I'm just using that as an analogy, but you have to let people, but what happens is they start, and this is something even Plato said, they don't really know why they're doing it or what they are doing until they're already being drawn into it. Um, so that's my response to the first point you made. The second point I think is a real is a is it's very significant, um, <clears throat> and so part of the way I've been trying to address that, which is something you've noted, is to try and have many different, um, um, you know, dialogos, or, or at least somewhere on the dialogos continuum, uh, with many different people that come at this from different degrees of familiarity with the terms and the work. Um, and so uh, I'm hoping that I, that I can help to afford, but also participate, and this is already happening, in wider communities that are also crafting a lot of the bridging terms and the bridging, bridging language so that when people come in, they may come on in this, because I, I, some people are saying that to me. They said, well, I, I listened to this one talk and I didn't quite get what you guys were talking about. Then I went over here and listened to this other conversation you had with somebody else and I, oh, and then I came back. And so, so Chris and Guy and Peter, right? We, we all, and jo Jordan Hall, and I, we, all, we all talk about like the meta dialogos to try and pay attention to how the various dialogues uh, are in a meta dialogue. They're all also talking to each other at this more hyper level. Uh, and so my hope, again, these are both hopes. Uh, my hope is that that gets dynamic and complex in the good sense for people so that um, they will be able to naturally find their way uh, through. So instead of thinking of the audi audience out there as an obstacle, trying to think of it as a field uh, that makes many different ways of talking about this possible, so that people will actually increase the points of access. Um, and what, so we, many of us carry with, we, we, we've, I hope this helps as an analogy. Chris and I talked about this explicitly. We, we carry the model of like the Greek chorus. The people, the audience is like the Greek chorus in a Greek play. They're the observers. Uh, and so there's the actors and they're doing their thing, but the chorus is there and you keep the chorus in mind. And if you, if you sort of frame it that way, it can actually help um, enhance the conversation. Huh. Um, That's brilliant. I haven't thought of that. That's very useful. Uh, and, and I do like the, this aspect of like um, of, of distribution across yeah. ac across yeah. many different things, so that it kind of converges. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'll hope that we have time to. I, I want to get into this problem of accessibility because I think it's a I think it's a big problem. It is. Uh, but but I want to touch on, yeah, yeah, but I want to touch on some other things first. So maybe we'll get a bit sure. to that later. So I've, I've consumed a lot of your work. Um, and Thank you. something that's like in all of your work, you explain a lot of history, philosophy, psychology, coxi, et cetera. 
but I rarely see an autobiographical element in it. Like I know surprisingly little for how much I've watched your stuff. And I'm curious if you could touch a bit on your personal history in the sense of uh, your intellectual developments in relationship to science and to religion. Like how did you come about these topics and maybe moments of, of Kairos that really change your worldview? Yeah. Um, so I was brought up with, uh, I was brought up in better, better way to put it. I was brought up in a fundamentalist Christian uh, world. Um, not only my, the, the nuclear family, but my extended family. Um, and, 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 you know, I've tried to get a more adult uh, reflection on that. There's, there's things that, did for me. Uh, it exposed me to symbolic thought, um, you know, the importance of ritual. Uh, and so I've tried to uh, appreciate it. Um, it introduced me to Jesus of Nazareth, and that has been a, an important uh, uh, relationship for me, um, as, it, as the relationship to Socrates or Siddhartha are. Um, but it was ultimately a very traumatizing experience. So of course, I didn't know that at the time, because that's the thing about when you're in that kind of situation, you don't realize it until you get out of, like the, the, you're in trauma precisely because you're a kid that can't process things with a kid's mind, right? That is overwhelming. And it, it's, and, but I, it, it traumatized me and it, 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 it caused some very deep wounds that I'm still working on about uh, how, to, how to properly connect to yourself to, uh, other people in the world. That's why those three dimensions, one of the gifts, I suppose, was the trauma made me aware of how, I, I didn't know this at that time, this is anachronistic, but you know, how, how much those connections really matter uh, to uh, a meaningful life. And so eventually I, 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 st I was, right, I, I just read a couple of books that blew me open. I read a, uh, a science fiction book called Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny, one of the masterpieces of what was called new wave science fiction. And it just exposed me to alternative mythologies and philosophies. And it just, it just blew me open. And then I read um, Fifth Business by Robertson Davies and I was introduced to Jung. And then I read Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. Like, so very rapidly, I was like, opened up. And so I left that religious worldview, but I left it, I, I left it in, somebody who was angered by how it had harmed me. So I became sort of a militant, very militant sort of atheist, um, as many people do when they have been harmed by religion. Yeah. And so, um, and then I tried, you know, I, 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 I sort of things settled down for me a bit um, because what had happened was um, I, I went to university and I was going to just, do, I was originally sort of interested in political science because I was getting very aggressive about my views, uh, was, was, which was consonant with the militant atheism. And I just happened to take a philosophy course. But I was interested in philosophy uh, because of Hermann Hesse, right? And, um, and I met the figure of Socrates in a philosophy class. And it was like, that was a kairos for me. It was like, boom. And I just, that's why I've spent the rest of my life trying to understand this man. Um, it just blew me open. The, the, the books had broken that fundamentalist frame for me. But what I saw in Socrates was an, was a, an alternative, positive, a, a better frame, a better way of framing things. And so, and, and the thing about Platonic philosophy, you, you can see why it was so suited to me. Platonic philosophy, Plato and Socrates were creating a philosophy that was 
progressively, I don't know how much this was deliberate, but it was progressively taking the place of the religion of ancient Greece. It was a philosophy that was replacing uh, the, the worship of the Homeric gods, right? Um, and that was part of the, the conflict it had. And, uh, and so it was perfectly designed for somebody like me that was hungry to have those connections uh, met and, uh, but was trying to leave a fundamentalist religious orientation. So I, start, I got really sort of, right, powerfully, I fell in love with Socrates and I fell in love with his cultivation of wisdom and virtue. But what happens, and, and this has been the case until very recently, this discipline, philia sophia, the love of wisdom, after that first course, stops talking about wisdom. Stops, it gets into problems of skepticism and what is knowledge and what is science and what is culture? Um, you know, what is good behavior? Um, what's a good theory? Now, I, I found that independently valuable because, right, I just found that, oh, wow, this is really cool. Uh, right, I found that independently valuable, but the hunger I had for the cultivation of wisdom and self-transcendence that had been awoken in me in Socrates um, wasn't being met again. Um, so much so that I was starting to consider just leaving the academic world. Like, uh, but what happened is it was where I was living at the time, like literally two minutes away, there was a place called the Tai Chi and Meditation Center. Um, and I decided, well, I'm... The, I, I, want, I still want to cultivate wisdom. And so I went there and I got introduced to Vipassana and Metta from the Buddhist tradition, Tai Chi Chuan from the Taoist tradition, Qi Kung from the Taoist tradition. And it was like, whoa. And so I, I, I and I, I mean this in both senses of the word, I pursued all of these things religiously and deeply because I found, oh, and I started to see the transformation. Now about that time I'd finished like my MA in philosophy and I was completely disillusioned with academic philosophy. And I left, I left the university for like a year. I just was into these practices and I was a little bit stuck because I was trying to figure out, well, like, you know, nobody's going to pay me to do, to meditate and do Tai Chi. Turns out that down the road people will, but not at the time, right? Um, but then what happened is I, I heard about, you know, this new discipline, cognitive science, um, and how it was interdisciplinary. And I, and I went back and I started to take it. And I started, oh, this is the kind of science that would connect up with the transformation. And then what happened is, Cognitive science was in a process of changing. It was, it was evolving from a computational mode into the 4E mode, the embodied, embedded, inactive, extended. And, these, and they were starting to talk about mindfulness. And I, taught, I was starting to teach about mindfulness and starting to teach about wisdom in, my, in the psychology courses because psychology was now talking about it. And, and philosophy was now starting to talk about wisdom. And what happened is this kairos of these two came together for me. And... What and then what happened is when what, somebody who's had a huge intellectual influence on me, my, my colleague and friend, Evan Thompson, he was supposed to teach a course called Buddhism and Cognitive Science, and he couldn't teach it. And he said to them, well, you know, John could teach that course. And I went in to teach that course, and I started to, I started to consider the possibility that something that had happened to me was happening to, to many people and, and, in some sense, to the culture at large. And I started to build this argument about the meaning crisis and how we've lost wisdom and how we've lost these other ways of knowing and how we've lost rituals in the proper sense. And we've lost people that inspire us to aspire to self-transcendence. And my students ate this stuff up. And I, and I was like, oh. And then I sort of 
recorded one version of that course and it was just I just put out a camera on it was it was horrible and rinky dink but it was still getting quite a few views and then I, I and then another student had gone through the course and he came to me and he said you know I'm a professional you know videographer my dad's a professional editor we want to take this what you've done and make a much better version and that became awakening from the meaning crisis and along that way I was doing all this work on relevance, realization, intelligence, rationality, self-deception, wisdom within cognitive science, and it just all came together. And increasingly, I have moved back to uh, a position, a position I call non-theism, um, uh, that um, I think addresses the hunger that was originally. Uh, lit in me when I left my religious uh, framework. And uh, I've seen many, many people. And I, I guess I, that, that's just lucky that my personal path is uh, shareable enough with enough people that they, they, they find, they, they're telling me they find it helpful and valuable. So I think that's sort of my spiritual intellectual uh, biography. I hope that was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that was awesome. And, and I've, I've always wondered exactly what was your background in philosophy, because I, I knew you had some background, but I didn't quite understand how you got to Kogsai. And so that, that did clarify it. And it's it's quite interesting how there was this this such a heavy conversion of everything. Yeah, yeah um, very and much. That, yeah, and I really like the, the way that you uh, described cognitive science, because that's exactly the way I felt when I was introduced to it. I think I was introduced to you by you. I was introduced to it by you. Uh, right. Maybe I've heard it in the past, but like I didn't know what what was about exactly. Um, but yeah, and I think in some parts of your story, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty common, uh, you know, common journey nowadays yeah. uh, with yeah, our culture. Pretty much. So, so I found out, and then as I did more demographic research with Chris, uh, Master Pietro, and Philip Rissovic and uh, Misovic, I should say. Um, yeah, it's like, oh wow, this this is yeah. The nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, this is a big thing. And and more and more people are leaving. Um, and more and more people are talking about how they've been traumatized uh, by the religious upbringing. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so something that I've been really trying to do, well, I've been trying to do two things. One is a more selfish endeavor of trying to understand uh, reality and trying to understand what religion is about and how to cultivate wisdom. But yeah. another aspect of it is more communal in the sense that I want to transmit this to people. Mm -hmm. And there's two types of people that I really want to grab, which is one is like the fundamentalists, religious people that are like very dogmatic in their thinking. They associate religion very much with a, with a supernatural, a very cosmological view. And then there's the atheists that are just like, you know, yeah. Dawkins type, whatever. So, I really want to speak to those people and I kind of want to, you know, to the religious, I want to say that you have something of value, but there's different ways of interpreting it. Yeah. Um, and to the atheists, I want to say that, well, first of all, your view is a bit incoherent depending on where the spectrum right. you are, but also you don't get religion. Like you're criticizing something that you have no idea what you're talking about. I agree with everything you're saying so far. So, so I want to bring them together, but the problem is, when I interact with these types of people, um, I don't have, like, I, I want to, I, I kind of know what to say to kind of uh, yeah. shift their thinking a little bit, 
But in the types of interactions that I have, I don't have infinite time. And their worldviews are very hard to break into. Yeah. Um, And they're dependent on each other. Exactly. The the fundamentalists. Absolutely. They're locked into a narrative of eternal opposition. Mm-hmm. Right, and they and, and they exi- they justify the, they they justify each other's existence because each is the other's villain, right? So that they can be the hero in their story. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so, yeah. what I'm wondering is, uh, I've been having a tough time to transmit what I want to transmit, but in a compact form that is still because I don't have the time to give them a two-hour yeah. lecture, but also powerful enough so that they understand what I'm talking about and see the world a little bit different. But that has been difficult because it's hard to change people's worldviews. So I'm asking your help for it. So imagine that you have those two types of people and you can give them a very short, condensed argument. I mean, it doesn't have to be argumentative, but you know, try, yeah. try, to, try, to, try to see them where that middle ground is. So for those two types of people. So um, things that have helped for me is to try and not uh, engage directly in the religious doctrine, right? Because it both of the both of those groups will try to lock you into the propositions that must be affirmed, right? Um, and so, it, it, if that happens, then no, nothing's going to happen because then, like I said, the the narrative it, it just gets locked into place, right? Um, so, typically, what I do is I try to talk to people um, about. Um, wisdom and self-deception because um, you know the atheists will they'll make all their arguments also well that's you know i understand the stuff about science i'm a scientist but what do you do to make your like to to overcome self-deception in your own life science is about overcoming self-deception well, like what and what, what what do you practice in order to overcome self-deception in your own life and typically they don't have a good answer typically they're but they they know that they should because science is about overcoming self-deception they know that and so when I, I ask him, when I, when I make it a sort of existential challenge, well, what do you, what do, you do? So I, I don't so much make an argument. I ask them, well, what do you do in your life to overcome self-deception? Like what, a, and they'll, well, you know, I, I'm very rational. Well, well I, 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 that's really interesting. I study rationality. What do you mean by rationality? And then I try, I, for them, if I, can, if I can even just get them to broaden the notion of rationality beyond just inferential argumentation, right? That to me is that's that's the most that I sort of hope for in those interactions because often what people will do is they'll go away and they'll that's a Socratic moment right they'll, well, they'll think I should be I should be more right I like this isn't about right just hammering and uh, people's belief it's about you know living a good life and so I I, I try to do that and then the the, the fundamentalists they're also uh, sort of again they, they have this notion of sin. Um, and so, you know, well, what do you mean by, well, disobedience to God? Oh, yeah, I get that. But like, what does that mean? How, how do you, how do you experience that? How does that, but, and, oh, that's interesting. That's very similar to what I talk about over here about how self-deception works and right. And so, and, and try to get them out, uh, where they're also, so I don't try and I don't, I stay out of the knowledge arena because that's where they want to keep themselves because that's where they play the game. And I try to shift people like if the goal is to get them talking to you because they're not going to talk to each other for a very long time, but if to get each one to talk to you with respect so that a group of, and if you're growing a group of people, a community like that, and they're both willing to talk, then 
connections will be formed and, and eventually possibly across, right? Because people have to move before they will, they have to move in community before they will move in communication. Um, and so for me, the most I hope for, and I, I, I would suggest to you the most you could reasonably hope for, is just to get both of them out of the knowledge arena and into the wisdom arena. The wisdom and meaning are, and don't talk about meaning because uh, directly because then they'll often the atheists will just well I give my life meaning and they'll just sort of I'm a Superman, uh, and the fundamentals of Jesus is my, that is the meaning of my life, so don't 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 typically do that. Um, but wisdom and overcoming self deception and what do you do in order to make sure you're not projecting onto other people and that's that's what I've found has been helpful for me. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's that's very insi insightful, um, and that's kind of that's kind of what I, what I realized when I found your work as well. Like the, the aspect of wisdom seems a really good uh, bridging point. Uh, yeah, to, and, and it's. It, I think it helps. I think it is the bridging point between science and spirituality. Yeah. Right. Right. Perfect. Okay, so I'd like to bring a topic that I think is probably. Uh, one of the things that I that I disagreed with you uh, the most, and I'm going to fair, first fair enough, state, fair enough. I'm going to first state your point of view, and then you can correct me if that was a bit misleading. Um, sure. So, in Thank a mystical ex okay, so in a mystical experience, uh, what you argue is that we should pay attention to its uh, participatory role and not specifically the propositions that one feels yeah. like they gained. Yeah, um, and so I think that's really valuable and when i'm when i'm speaking to people uh, i really try to bring that notion of of, yeah. of of flow of insight because that makes the experience more intelligible because otherwise people just think yeah. you're fucking nuts totally. Totally. so so i think that's a really good approach but i'm 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 skeptical of totally discarding any possible propositional knowledge that you might get from okay. from these experiences because for example you mentioned that some people go to the experience uh, and they might be religious and then they say, oh, now I get it. And I have, I've had this insight that there is no God and there's right. vice versa. So an atheist right. comes to the experience, yeah. oh, there yeah. is a God. And those are contradictory. Yes. So first of all, uh, just because they're contradictory, that doesn't mean that one of them isn't, isn't right because the, the experience has to be interpreted. It's not like you just have yeah. like yeah. The, the raw truth, truth to you. And also, well, I don't think you've made this explicitly, it kind of implicitly assumes that both happen at the same rate. And it's not quite the case from my experience, both from my experience of uh, talking with a lot of this community. And also I saw research presented, I think two years ago on breaking convention in London, which is a psychedelic yeah. uh, conference. And someone there did a really cool study, which was um, they got a bunch of people uh, that yep. didn't have a psychedelic experience. And they asked them where they were at in terms of uh, their belief on philosophy of mind. So if they were materialists, dualists, or idealists. Sure. And unfortunately, sure. they didn't have uh, and psychism. But but then they some people had a mystical experience with psychedelic use. And then they asked them again. And what you predictably find is that a lot of people stop being <laughs> materialists and sure. they shift to sure. dualism or idealism. Uh, and so there's clearly a bias towards... I don't, there's problems in calling it a religious view when, when you have a missile experience, but something like it, I would say maybe something like recognizing the value of meaning and sacredness compared to uh, yeah. 
yeah. a completely factual accounts of the world. Um, and so I, I would like you to uh, talk a little bit about that. If, if, if we truly should ignore all metaphysical speculation and by metaphysical speculation, I don't mean, you know, just, just believe something because you experience it. Like, I'm not saying you should take it at yeah. face value, you know, but carefully, carefully analyze it, cross compare with other people, with other cultures, how these things have been talked about for millennia, stuff like that. So do, do you truly think that there is no place for propositional knowledge out of mystical experiences? Okay, so uh, uh, said that way, uh, there is a place for propositional knowledge. Uh, and I can see why I was uh, probably unclear about that. I was really, uh, so let me try and, uh, say what I think I'm I, uh, a little bit more, what I, what I think and say it a little bit more carefully. Um, so the point, yes, there isn't an equal distribution between the people who say there is a God and there's no God. Uh, the point is there's no difference in, in what they can bring to bear to justify it, right? And so there's no way of, there's, there's no, to my mind, there's no epistemic thing from within the experiences. Their experiences seem equal. And so the experience provides no more justification for this proposition rather than that proposition. Um, so that's what I meant. I didn't mean to convey that it was sort of equal. Now, the thing you, you said about what happens is these people often move away from materialism. Uh, I think, yeah, uh, I would agree with that. But again, let's take a look at the research. If you have people who have an experience under psychedelics, they will tend to describe ultimate reality in a very impersonal terms like the one or ultimate reality or the universe. Whereas they, if they tend to have it outside of psychedelic experience, they are much more prone to describing it in theistic terms. Um, so again, there isn't even, even when people are moving away, the way, the, 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 the way they're participating in the perspectival transformations that they're undergoing significantly predict right, uh, the propositions, which means, I would say, that the propositions are probably therefore not being so much caused by a particular truth of reality, they're being caused by the state that you're in, because that seems to be what's predicting. Um, it's like, uh, it, you know, it's like the old argument, if religion was primarily uh, a way of directly knowing reality, we would expect uh, religions, religious affiliation to be very, you know, equally distributed, but chances are you will have the religion of your parents. Right. Uh, and so that's much more predictive of which religion you adopt than the structure of reality per se. And that's not an argument for atheism. I, I hope you see that. What right. I'm just trying to say, you have to be really careful now about the, but the point you made is a really legitimate one that people move. And that, I was trying to convey that in that sense of, uh, of ontonormativity that, that what is the same. And, and those are propositions. I, 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 I don't mean to exclude people say, I'm, I'm somehow in touch with the really real. And I think that, and, and secondly, that is incredibly, that connection is incredibly meaningful to me and I'm willing to transform my life and my identity. And so insofar as those experiences give you propositions about like your phenomenological experience, your sense of connectedness, right? Uh, your, your sense of the meaning and value of your life. I think those propositions are valuable and they should be considered as, uh, as plausible candidates for truth, right? That they're, 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 people are making true statements. Um, 
that people move away from materialism? Yeah, I think that's going to be the case because, as I've argued in the series, the standard scientific worldview doesn't know how to talk about this stuff. So they have to move away from it in order to talk about it. But of course, what they move what, what they move away from when they move away from materialism varies considerably. People move into dualisms, they move into panpsychism, they move into idealism, mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and some of them move into non-dualism. Uh, so again, the movement away goes in a variety of directions. Um, so I think you're right. And other people have pointed that out. I, I was, I was, so I acknowledge that. I was too extreme in saying, sort of ignore the propositional content. What a, a more cautious way of saying it is take seriously the propositional content that's a theory about, you know, uh, you know, or, or at least maybe that's even too wrong, a strong word, but a, a, an attempt to provide a description for the processes of transformation. That are, so if there's a kind of knowing thyself that has a propositional component in it that comes out of these experiences. And I want to acknowledge that as a real thing. Um, and I think ontonormativity does entail a movement away from a strict adherence to a sort of reductive physicalist scientific worldview. Uh, yeah, I acknowledge that as well. And so it does open people up to trying to come up with a better framework that reliably brings them back, both conceptually, but also existentially, emotionally, a better framework that brings them more reliably back to that sense of the really real. Right. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. That's very reasonable. Um, I would put it in a bit stronger terms than you're putting it, because I think the variation in proposition doesn't uh, necessarily uh, make it false, even if there's variation, because there's different ways of interpreting that variation. Sure. But let's sure. not get boggled down in, in, in that. But I, I do agree uh, with what you said, and I think that's, that's, that's well put. So something I would like to explore um, is the ecology of practices. And, and I would like yeah. to bring uh, some context to see where I'm coming from when I'm going to ask this question. So I started studying, studying psychology and philosophy uh, on my own. Like I started discovering these topics. I was really interested. I started listening to lectures, podcasts, bots, books that seemed cool. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. But after doing that for a while, I started to realize that, well, this is dangerous because if I, if I keep doing this, what I learn will be very selective, even, even if it's yeah. unconscious. Yeah, and, yeah. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up in a place that's very different than the place I want to reach. And yeah. so because of that, I joined the university, even though I had no plans to do anything with a degree because I already had yeah. a career yeah. by that point. Yes. But so I joined the university to try to get a more formal education that wouldn't depend on my likes and what ideas I found through their students. Excellent, yeah. Okay, so the reason why I'm bringing this up is to make a parallel with your uh, ecology of practices because you because what happens is when, you, when you're selecting very various technologies of spirituality yeah. from different cultures, you're kind of assuming a top view and you look at it from, 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 from above and you say, this is useful and this is not. Yeah. And so yeah. you kind of suffer or, or you, you have the potential to suffer what I was trying to avoid. Yeah, autodidactism. So how, yeah. Okay. So how, how do you avoid that when you're, when you're picking different things? Well, first of all, uh, so bottom, uh, there's both bottom up and top down uh, constraints. The bottom up ones are to pay attention to design features that should be independent of your preferences. 
Um, you should find uh, bona fide evidence, either traditional evidence from a community, but also hopefully scientific evidence of, of the strengths and weaknesses of practices. And if you really like this practice, you better get aware of its weaknesses and find a complementary practice that has compensatory strengths. And so they can act as checks and balances. And so you, ne there, you need to do that. You need to have a, a layering of practices that, 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 that correspond to the sort of different levels of knowing. Um, you need to have practices that help to, to bridge between the kinds of knowing. So there's lots of what you might call objective design features that you can use good science, good cognitive science, in order to try and put into your practice. Like, so I've been arguing, and there's lots of convergent evidence for this, other people have been arguing, so I don't, I don't want to take sole credit, but that mindfulness and active open-mindedness have a complementary relationship. And you should not be, I, I'll be strong on this, you should not be practicing one without practicing the other, because you need that checks and balance and we that was in the paper that I published with Leo in 2013 about the cognitive science of relevance, meaning, and wisdom. Um, and so there are bottom up, there are objective design features that should uh, prevent you from just following your untutored preferences in how you choose your practices. Now, the thing is, you also have to choose practices that take. So you're trying to get this sort of middle path between just imposing something on yourself and also just self-indulging, right? It's the Buddhist path, right? You don't just impose on yourself in the forest and in asceticism, and you don't just give in to yourself in the palace, right? You're trying to find in between. The top-down is exactly what we were talking about earlier. Uh, I think of dialogos, and I, I, dialogos requires a pedagogical program. You have to, you have to, you, they're like, there's a bunch of practices you have to practice in sequence to get to the place where you can do it well. But I see dialogos as giving us the collective rationality, perhaps even the collective wisdom at distributed cognition that can act as a guide for us, a normative guide for us, like you know the community of the church did for people, that can act as a normative guide to us when we curate and coordinate our individual and also group uh, ecologies of practices. So the idea is there's bottom-up design constraints and then there's top-down constraints from the meta-psychotechnology, that's what Jordan Hall calls it, the meta-psychotechnology of Dialogos. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you think about it, that's pretty much what's worked for us in the past, right? We had bottom-up design features, and then we had a top-down distributed cognition machine of some kind that acted as, you know, the space of affordance and the space of vetting as people tried to curate their individual or familial spiritual lives. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. Um, I, I just remember that uh, you know this problem has of, of selection has been salient uh, to me for a long time, but yeah. I only really felt it deep in my soul uh, a while back when reading Augustine, and yeah. I'm going to butcher what he said a little bit, but I think I believe the meaning is correct. Like he said something like, "If you follow the gospel, but you follow only the parts you don't like, you're not following the gospel. You're following yourself." Yes. And when yeah. I read that and taking into account my background of philosophy and psychology, I was like, well, you know, and that has its problems, you know, it can, it can become dogmatic. Yeah. And it could become really harmful to people too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that really made me salient. And I loved how you connected to the logos because I think I don't really know how to explain it too well uh, without sounding a bit crazy, but, but, but I, I do understand what, what you were getting at. And, and I didn't quite think of it in those terms. Now, in terms of analyzing 
the practices in terms, you know, there, there's a traditional elements. Uh, so right. some, some practices have been, you know, been, been done forever. Um, but, and then there's also a science element. So, so cognitive science has been very interested in, you know, ritual yeah. and, and, you know, the, 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 the wisdom behind the, yeah. the technologies that religion employs. And I think that's a useful framework, but the problem that I have with that is that science is always behind because if you were in that position that you're now of, of evaluating the science uh, of, of those technologies, if you were doing that 50 or hundred years ago, like you wouldn't be able to understand what they were about. Yep, yep, I, I think that's true. I think it was the other way too. Uh, religion's always behind too because you see religions changing themselves to take into account for what science is doing. You know, you know, you, you, what happens in the history of Protestantism is it moves towards a very Cartesian model of Christianity um, through its history, right? And so I think they're both behind each other um, uh, in important ways. And, and so just like I really share with you the concern about autodidactism, I can share with you that concern. And, and, and it's analogous uh, to what happens in cognitive science because often... In some ways, philosophy is ahead of psychology, but in other ways, psychology is ahead of philosophy. So it's, it's, it's a problem that I'm very familiar with. And so trying to create, um, like that's, what I, that's why I also put emphasis on these bridging practices that allow, that allow these different, so that they can catch each other up, right? Um, so that they can mutually inspire uh, in, you know, insight and transformation in each other. I mean, that's one way if you had to put it in a slogan and what I'm trying to do with science and spirituality. I'm trying to craft something that allows them to catch each other up. Um, and so the, the one, yeah, the one amendment I, was, or I would make is I think the, 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 the being out of sync goes both ways. And then it seems to me that the best way to address that is, well, what can I build in between that will help them catch each other up uh, as much as possible? Um, and other people are doing that. That is not solely my project by any means. And what's happening is I'm seeing like I'm seeing the more they talk to each other, I'm seeing on the Cogsai, I'm seeing Cogsai really ramp up, right? It's really been moving very fast in the last two decades, which is fast for science, right? Um, and I'm starting to see, I'm starting to see people much more open within spirituality to cognitive science. Jonathan Pajot, good friend, right? And you had him on here. Uh, Jonathan, uh, by his own admission, he said he used to be sort of hostile to the scientific worldview. But as he's seen some of the things from 4E cognitive science, he says he's now more open. And he and I have genuinely good uh, dialogos together. Yeah, um, and same thing with Paul Vanderclay and Mary Cohen and J.P. Marceau. Right? And these are, these are all committed Christians. But, but their attitude towards – and I, I don't mean to be condescending, but I think they're, they're, they're getting sort of caught up on the science. And then on the other side, I see the, the, the cognitive scientists – because of the work that I do and Evan Thompson does and Dreyfus, like the whole, this whole host of people, Gallagher, right? Uh, like all of that stuff. They're also getting caught up to the spirituality. And, you know, and I, I was last year, I was, uh, you know, we got all of the psychologists, well, not all of them, but most of the experts on the psychology of wisdom together. And we hung out in a room for 10 hours and banged away. And then we worked on it and, and we published, a, you know, it's published in a high impact journal, Psychological Science, a consensus paper on the psychology of wisdom. Like that wouldn't, that wouldn't have been possible even five years ago, right. but it's happened and it's there. That's happening. Um, so I take seriously what you're saying. But I guess I'm a little bit more hopeful because I, I'm seeing more of the moments of 
the, the sparking of, of, of synchronicity between the two, or, or maybe synergism is a better word. Yeah, not synchronicity, synergism between the two. And, and that, that is making me more hopeful. I think that problem is, is, is what, like one of the core issues is how do we get them, how do we get them to talk to each other so that they catch each other up? Almost like friends who haven't seen each other for a while. Exactly. That, that, that was perfect. And, and, and that, that does make me a bit more optimistic. And I do like the, 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 the mutual uh, catching up. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. So something that I would like to bring up is that you have introduced a lot of really helpful and powerful uh, conceptual vocabulary. So a lot of times you use older words, tracking their etymology to try to recuperate their original meaning so yeah. that we don't have the associations with the, with the modern world's words. And also sometimes you make new worlds, words yeah. to try to convey a meaning that otherwise would be very difficult to transmit in a, in, a short, in a short manner. But the problem with that conceptual vocabulary is that it, it becomes increasingly abstract and increasingly distant. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and so because I've consumed so much of your work, I'm very familiar with your vocabulary, but if I send some of your videos to, you know, regular friends and, 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 you know, pretty smart people, a lot of them will get lost, you know, and even when you have the, the logos with other people, if it's people that I'm not familiar with their work at all, uh, yeah. it's also hard to follow. And so there's this problem that you need the vocabulary because otherwise yeah. it's, it's meaning that it's very hard to transmit, yeah. uh, but also it's increasingly distant, increasingly abstract. And from my understanding, part of what religion mythology used to do is that it yeah. brings all this meaning of really high-end philosophy yeah. and theology and it it condenses it into a narrative that yeah. that it can be understood by the lower level uh, yeah. of people yeah. and, and i don't mean well, that in a consent, consent consenting way but you know they understand the philosophy and the theology by the story without yeah. needing you know this really abstract stuff Yes, but but yes. we lost that now because because we can't understand stories as they're meant to be understood. So how do you fix that? Because we, we need the meaning and the power, but yeah. you know it has this consequence. And, and uh, you know I'm really respectful of that question. Uh, you know because that's a criticism that Paul and Jonathan Paul Van der Clay Jonathan Bajot have made. Um, also, some of the work you know the 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 uh, the, the, the uh, debate within affection. Uh, that I'm having with uh, Mary and uh, Mark Lefebvre and others about their proposal for parabolic knowing, which is, um, I still have sort of scientific criticisms of that as a scientific proposal. But I've been trying to also understand the intent. And the intent, it, it, I think, is coming more and more clear to me. It's doing exactly what you say. Um, and this is, so this is really on sort of the cutting edge of my thinking on this problem, because it's something I'm currently wrestling with. So, uh, Perhaps a little bit of charity on your part of if I struggle a bit and a little bit incoherent. Of um, but the thing that's the thing that's helping me, and, and something that I talked about when I talked about uh, Corban and the Meaning series, Awakening for the Meaning Crisis series, and when I talked to Thomas Cheatham, uh, because I read his book on Corban and Corban's notion of the imaginal, um, which is not the same thing as mental image. The imaginal is your so. Compare imagining a sailboat to a child putting on a cape, uh, like a blanket, 
and jumping off and pretending that they're Superman. They don't have an image in their head. They're actually enacting a way of relating to themselves in the world. That's the imaginal as opposed to in your head, which is just the imaginary. Does that sort of track as a distinction? So there's a difference between you know, creating a mental picture and pretending uh, a certain way in reality, right? And so that's what I often call serious play. That's what Corbin means by the imaginal. He means that kind of real serious play, the kind of enacted imagery that we do when we talk about somebody engaged in pretending, make-believe, uh, and l listen to those phrases, man, pretending, you know, attending to it ahead of time, right? Tending to it, um, making believe, uh, right? It's, uh, and so the imaginal is exactly that. And its job is to bridge between the sensual, sense experience, and the conceptual. Its job, and his big criticism, and he what he saw in Persian Sufism was that Persian Sufism properly understood the, the central mediating role of the imaginal, and that without the imaginal, the conceptual and the sensual, and, and Corbin's criticism, which I didn't make clear enough in the series, was that one, an, another one of the Cartesian divisions is we've divided the world into the empirical or the rational. It's just sensual or it's just conceptual. And we and then romanticism tried to do the imaginal, but it got really mixed up in a lot of crazy ways. And so Corbin is trying to sort of recuperate and restructure romanticism and then integrate it with imaginal practices from the Neoplatonic traditions, especially within Sufism, and try to say, and that's what he means by angels. It's this imaginal realm, not imaginary, right? It's so the imaginal takes place in what I call the transjective, that which binds the subjective and the objective this way, but the imaginal also binds the sensual and the conceptual together. And so I think of religions as like imaginal augmented reality, like the way we can take virtual reality and impose it on real reality, physical reality, so that we can see physical reality better. We can pretend through it so we actually get better at interacting with reality. So think of something very non-controversial. You have the heads-up display in the fighter pilot. He's got all this stuff on his window screen that's not actually coming from the environment, right? It's imaginal because he's looking through it and it helps him see things that he would, wouldn't otherwise see. That's what I mean. That's what we mean by augmented reality. And I think religions are imaginal augmentations of reality. And what's missing in my work, but, but partially because of uh, neglect and ignorance and partially because of I don't have that expertise, is right the creation of the imaginal that not only bridges between the subjective and the objective, but bridges between the sensual and the conceptual. And I think... Corbin is right that that's, and you try to hear this word other than just through the romantic ears, that's properly the role of art. Um, I, and I'm not an artist. I, I mean, I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I'm not. I mean, I, I, I've been writing poetry for a couple of decades. So I think I've got, I, don't, I, I wouldn't try and publish any, any of it or anything like that. But people tell me it's fairly good, at least at a personal level. All I mean by that is I think I got an understanding of that as an art form. But that's so... I've been trying to encourage people, and people do. They send me works of art, uh, or a Cure the Dawn. It's doing the Meaning Wave, where he's putting he's putting the entire Meaning Crisis series to music and live performance, 
right? He's, he's doing that pretense. He's doing augmented reality. He's doing the enacted imaginal. I can't do it, but he's doing it. And, 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 and people can do what you said. They can, people that otherwise couldn't get into my work are getting into the work. And so I can't do it because I don't, I, I'm not the right person for the job. What I can do is talk about how I can do what I do, which is talk about the theory of why it's needed and, and point to people like Corbin and others. But I, I mean, and I can keep acknowledging that this needs to be done more, but I'm not the person to actually do it. I, what I can do is, I, uh, so I'm receptive when people, like I'm looking at a painting that somebody sent me, right? When they sent, and I'm receptive and I'm encouraging. And when a cure approached me, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, so I'm a little bit at a loss of what more I should be doing to try right. and, uh, you know, increase the affordance of the generation of the imaginal. But that's what's needed. That's exactly what's needed. That, that was perfect. And, um, and I really, the imaginal, uh, uh, you know, subject, I really appreciate it because I've heard it before on your series, but it, it, I understood it better now. Yeah. And I have, a, I have a hard time imagining how that would actually look like, but I, I do understand that it's 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 something that's it's gonna take time and it's beyond your expertise and it's yeah it, it's it's still new and it, it and something very complicated. Um, so you know if if I had to talk with anyone on Earth for a long time, uh, I think that would be you. So it's oh. very surreal to have this conversation with you, and so I wow. can talk basically forever, but I want to be. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. So I have one last question. Uh, so, and maybe it's a big question, but what I would like to know, at least for you to explore a bit, is how exactly did you get so educated? Because your knowledge to me is just, is just insane. Because it's not only that you know cognitive science and you don't just know philosophy. Like you have a rich contextual knowledge of, of, of everything together. And, and, and you've read so much and um, I'm, I'm trying to emulate that, but I'm, 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 to me, it just doesn't look realistic at all. So if you could touch a bit on how exactly did you get to that point? And also I would like to, for you to recommend um, an academic path to get to where you are now. Because I'm kind of, I'm, I'm in my last year of psychology uh, and philosophy now, and I'm kind of uh, not sure exactly where to go for a master's, if I should try to get into cocci, if I get, if I want to get to philosophy, because, you know, there's so many topics and they're so independent and they all seem important. And I'm kind of overwhelmed which path to go. So if you could explore that a bit, that would be fantastic. Um. So, I mean, I was very privileged in that circumstances and people in my life and the, right, um, that I was, I mean, I went to university for like, uh, what, like 17 years. <laughs> so, because um, I got a BA, a BSc, an MA and a PhD. Um, so, and I'm not going to recommend that to other people. <laughs> I'm just not going to do that. That's not fair to anybody. That was, that is very, I, I understand that was very idiosyncratic for me. Um, but one of the things that I did learn, I mean, I, and I mean, also because I was in cognitive science and cognitive psychology, I, I did, I did, I mean, I learned how to learn. Um, and I learned how to read uh, in, in a very powerful way, I think, but 
but and it, but it's also that reading became and I mean this seriously it became like, I re, I read religiously right um, so for example one of the practices I do is I'll often read I'll, I'll read book I'll read quartets of books I'll put four books that have, are, are sort of to to my mind they're sort of in a family together they they sort of speak to each other they talk to and I read them in parallel which initially is harder to do. People like, I'll read this book and then this book. But when you read in parallel, initially it's harder. But as you do that, and if you do it deliberately and you choose it, what happens is the books start to talk to each other. And you start to, they, they, that really starts to draw you and, and you get deeper into each book because of the other three that it's around. You build this positive manifold and they speak to each other and, and then and they correct each other. And they draw you in more powerfully and you get more. And what happens is as your sort of boredom machinery kicks in, you can just move from you can move around the quartet and reinterest yourself and, and, and renew your interest in a powerful way. Um, and so what I have is I have quartets and then I'll have sort of quartets of quartets um, at, you know, around different topics and areas. And so um, and then I don't just read a book. I interact with it. That's why for me, uh, I, the book has to be a physical thing. Write in a book, mark in it. You, the margins were there to write it. That's what they're there for. That's why we have margins. The margins aren't like, that's why we have margins. The margins are there so you can write things in. And you write things, and there's often pieces of paper, empty pages at the end of a book. They're there for you to write things in, write things in, to interact with the book. You, and if you have the quartets, they help you generate questions for the text you're reading. You're reading this other text and you can ask questions, write the question down. Maybe the answer will be two pages later. Note that but get into a dialogical relationship with the individual text and reading in quartet will also help you dialogue with each book. That's what really helps me. That sounds very hard. <laughs> it's hard. Incredibly hard. But, but it's like a martial art. Like if I, you said to me, well, I noticed you're like a black belt. I'm like, well, like, how do you do that? And it's like, well, and it looks so easy. And it's like, well, initially it's harder than what you normally do. Right. Uh, but if you want to get to a play, but but what I can tell you is if you practice it and you practice it religiously, um, you'll get to a place where it goes from being something that you're pushing to something that is pulling you along. Right. Awesome. And also, could you also give some insight to people that kind of want to get to where you are of like an intersection of, you know, spirituality um, and yeah. science and the, the academic path together? What do you think people should prioritize? I, 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 I mean, I really, I want to be cautious here because egocentric bias is clearly acting. So take that into a case. So let's just have a moment so you really take what I just said because I'm going to say this. I think 4E cognitive science is the best place to get the academic training if you want to bridge between science and spirituality. I genuinely believe that. Yeah, that's good to hear because I just spent $50 on the new textbook <laughs> yeah. today. So uh, perfect. Uh, th that, that's kind of where I was leaning as well. But the, the problem is I'm not very good at math. And because COXI is associated with artificial intelligence, uh, there, a lot of programs have a lot of math and that kind of <laughs> scares me a little bit. Yeah, but usually, I mean, the one at UFT, we have two streams. Well, no, no, so we have five streams. I made a mistake, but two of those streams are, are in sort of science. You'll come out of it with a BSc and they emphasize math, but we also have three streams that you'll come out with a BA because they emphasize psychology or philosophy more. Um, 
So you can look around. There are variations in the programs, and you can look around for, for programs, and especially um, like who your supervisor is going to be about um, how you're going to steer yourself, whether or not you need to do something that's like a, a lot of people are in Coxine. They're not. They're not like doing any computer programming. You have to understand what's happening in machine learning. But for many of us, we can understand it at a, like a theoretical, philosophical level because that's all we need for the work we're doing. Right. So, gotcha. Yeah. So there, there's, there's what I'm saying is there's considerable variation in how computational your approach to CogSci has to be. And some of the programs that lean more towards the 4E CogSci have reduced the computational demands they place on their students. So look around a lot is what I want to say. Um, like I think uh, Andy Clark's thing in, 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 in Edinburgh um, is um, some, several of my students have gone on there as graduate students um, is not so, so mathy. I think the one here at Carleton, the graduate program in cognitive science is also not quite so computational. Definitely, I'm not, I'm not as sure about the Carleton one, uh, but I think that's the case. I'm, pr I'm quite sure about um, the, the one in Edinburgh around Andy Clark. Um, so look, look around more, right? right, right. right. Got it. The variation and also, you know, who's going to be your supervisor is also going to be really important for how mathy you'll, you'll, you'll need to be. Right. Right. Okay. I'll make sure to, to look around then. So, uh, we're about to one hour mark, so it's, it's a good place to end. And I would just like to say that I'm so grateful for a work. Like it's really ineffable how much meaning I've got gotten out of it. And I think this is even more impressive because when I already found your work I already was, you know, into psychology, into philosophy, you know, I, like some of the things you said already had intimations of it, but, but the way you put everything together and, and how scientific it was for me, was really eye-opening and, and your, your approach and your work, it's something that I'm trying to uh, replicate and, and I'm not as knowledgeable or as smart as you, but I'm in the way that I can, I'm trying to embody that in, in my, in my small circle. Well, you're also a lot younger than me, right? So <laughs> yes. Give yourself some time, right? You're, you're talking to somebody who's been working at this for what, like both academically and non-academically. Like I've been doing the meditation and Tai Chi for like 30 years and I've been, I've been in the academic world for even longer, right? So give yourself time too, right? Right. Like it takes time. It just, like you, 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 I, you, I, You'll be in a place probably beyond me when you get to, to, to my age. I'm already seeing my students, you know, uh, starting to surpass me in important ways. And I don't mean that, that in any kind of begrudgment. I mean, that, that's, that's what you want to see. So give yourself time. You, you, you're going to get there. You're going to get there. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, like if, if you happen to have time to, if, we, if, if you have interest of chatting again, because... You know, I, 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 commit, I commit to you now. If you ask me and we right, we'll work out a time. I'll definitely come back. I found you awesome. articulate. I found I found you very articulate, and I found you very responsive. And I, I and you were doing the genuine, not just interviewing. You were actually challenging in a respectful, dialectical way. Uh, I found your take on my work clear uh, and 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 even helpful to me to hear. Um, yeah, I loved this. I would love to do this again. Awesome. Perfect. That, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Um, in fact, if you could send me uh, this file, I'd like to upload it to Voices with Raveki and put it on as vo Voices with Raveki episode. Awesome. That, that, that would be amazing. I would definitely do that.
the you know, email me any information links to your podcast you want me to put in when you send me the file because uh, I, I very much would like to share this with other people uh, I, I like the, it, because the top one of the topics you brought up I felt you were doing throughout this discussion is that you were trying to bridge between sort of the very technical right language like the, that you rightly say I use and people's you know ongoing experience and I thought that I thought that was very helpful so thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, th thank you. So, okay. So that's it. And thank you very much. And I hope to chat with you again sometime. Uh, I count on it. So just awesome. we'll, make it, we'll make it happen. Perfect. Take good care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.